Welcome to Strength for Today's Pastor, conversations with current senior pastors and leaders which will strengthen and help you in your pastoral ministry. And now, here's your host, Bill Holdridge of Poyman Ministries. Welcome to podcast number 105. And once again, today we have Bible teacher, author, and speaker Gail Irwin with us. And our topic is Not Many Mighty. And it's a discussion about the ways of God and the choices that God makes in calling and using human beings. Very appropriate for ministers today, obviously. Gail Irwin has beautifully addressed what this looks like, this calling of God upon human lives, in his book, Not Many Mighty. And so thanks again for joining us, Gail. It's great to see you today and great to be with you. I'm honored. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. So we're going to dive right in because this is such an important subject. Uh, Always has been since the time that Jesus walked the earth, and it is today, maybe more than ever. Yes. So when, when someone who has not been around authentic Christianity much thinks about those individuals that God calls and God uses, they typically think of the person's qualifications, right? They think about maybe his talents, maybe his abilities, high premium placed on education, the different kind of letters that are behind your name. But God says, you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, 1 Corinthians 1.26. So I'd love to just hear your take on that passage and, and sort of what led you to the writing of the book and how that all works out in, this, in the text and in your heart. Well, it, it really all revolves around Jesus himself. He spent his time with the poor, with uh, and uh, the Pharisees, who were, of course, the religious leaders, believed that the people were poor because they were sinners. <laughs> and so Jesus spent his time with sinners. And when he uh, interfaced with the Pharisees, it was always a clash, you know. He didn't have much nice to say about them at all. But Jesus, uh, you know, there's always more poor people than there are wealthy, and there are always more uh, uneducated than there are educated there and and God loves people so he goes really where the people are who would appreciate his message of love and and favor and and the pharisees who were the religious leaders believed that they were poor because they were sinners and the pharisees were millionaires it was kind of like congress you got to be a millionaire to be a member of it and so forth uh, and so the poor were never uh, a Pharisee. You had to be rich to be a Pharisee. So Jesus worked with the poor. He did. So he went after the not many noble, not many mighty, and not many wise, according to the flesh. So so Paul the Apostle, he, he struggled with the Corinthian church, as we both know. And one of the struggles that was evident as he preached the gospel to that to that community was that they valued human wisdom in the way that they'd learned it through the Greek philosophers. They valued position and status and your station in life. They valued different oratorical styles that, that were you know, giving credence to them. They valued education. They valued all the things that, that Paul determined not to be to them. He determined to just come simply with the gospel of Christ and the message of the gospel. The Jews didn't like it because it was a stumbling block. The Greeks thought it was foolishness. But then Paul says to them, you see your calling, brethren. How did you come into the kingdom? (laughs) You know, there weren't many wise among you that have come into the kingdom. Not many mighty among you in Corinth came into the kingdom. Not many noble... I mean, basically, our church is a poor, relatively culturally unwise, and, and uh, you know, people that were open enough to respond to the gospel. Well, I, I often tell people that if you really want to be miserable, I've got to I can make you miserable right now. Just think about yourself. <laughs> and the thing about these, uh, well, politicians or anybody that's it's rising up the ladder is they're thinking about themselves. And they're miserable because they never fully get there. They never really get there. But when you are blessing other people, 
you'll discover something that you only can discover in God mm. that you're filled with joy. Mm. That's all there is to it. Mm. I tell people, I can make you miserable real quick. Just start thinking about yourself because nobody ever treats you as good as you really think you should be. Mm. And so forth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you really want to be filled with joy, start blessing other people. That's where it's at. I think about the tendency today, Gail, for ministers and ministry organizations or even denominations to be very impressed with their own credentials and maybe impressed with their own mission statement and their own vision and their own success and that kind of thing. And boy, it's just a tough thing to to see that happen in, in our world when so many people need Jesus so badly and all of those things are barricades to giving the gospel and and presenting the person of Christ. Well, God taught me something uh, about that in that uh, in the course of my growing up, I had several guys, one after another, that uh, I thought, man, they're where it's at. They're kind of my heroes. Every one of them (laughs) fell, you know, Mm, mm. And, and I think God was telling me, no, you don't have a hero there. Uh, Don't do that with people. And so, you know, he awakened me to the reality of humanity, that the, when I start climbing the ladder, I lose him. Yeah, it reminds me of the way you pronounce the word humble. I pronounce it with a H, a hard H sound. You, you say humble. I love that. It always helps me remember it. Be humble, like Jesus is humble. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, no, don't don't apologize. It's it it locks it into my brain. It, and isn't that one of our greatest struggles in life is to try to maintain some semblance of humility? Yeah, <laughs> that's a challenge. Well, obviously, God thinks differently about things that than we do, and He thinks about people a lot differently than we do in the natural. So. Talk about the title and theme of your book, Not Many Mighty. What's, what's the basic premise? What is it that you felt that the, that the Lord Jesus really wanted you to communicate in that book? Well, uh, there's the problem with being mighty is that you dwell on your mightiness. And being mighty means that others are weak and you take advantage of their weakness to increase your mightiness. So he can't use a person like that. He may have the appearance of being used because he may get press coverage, but they're not really used of God. I've, I've watched this, you know, and uh, whenever I have elevated anyone in my mind, God, I just, they, they fell, you know, and I thought, well, I better quit this because I'm bringing a lot of people down by elevating them in my mind. And uh, he just pointed me a whole in a whole different direction which I'm so thankful for. Man, am I thankful. Because I grew up in a pre- preacher's home, you know. But uh, one of the things that, that happened, my father was, uh, he was a real go-getter. And he went to the coast of Mississippi and started a church that just absolutely exploded in size and built a big, beautiful brick building paid for and did it in four years, you know, when he started the church. And then he was injured in an airplane accident. He was, it was not his plane. He, he was taking uh, flying lessons because he wanted to go back into the interior of Mississippi and start some more churches. But an, an Air Force plane from Keesler Air Base landed at his airport, which was a small airport and wasn't really fit for that plane pilot got out and asked dad if he'd ever rode in one of these oh no would you like to of course so they got in and the pilot didn't use adequate runway and they clipped the top of trees and crashed and now my father is left side paralyzed and uh, a different well not that much of a different person but I had to become his valet he still wanted to travel and and mom had to make the living. It plunged us into real poverty, which we lived in for the next 12 years. And uh, I would uh, spend most of my time taking care of dad anytime he wanted to go anywhere. He could still drive with his one right hand. Uh, I had to go with him. And 
and basically see to his welfare. So I, I learned a lot, a lot during that time because I was having to live for him. Uh, but, you know, right at the very beginning, it was I was in the first grade when he was injured. And I remember going up to over to his room and he would ask me to read things to him and to read the Bible to him. And I learned by the time I was out of the first grade, I could read anything. Mm, I mm, mean, mm. anything. Isn't that amazing how the Lord uses everything? He just uses everything. Yeah. My second grade, we moved out to the farm in Oklahoma. And on the school bus, going to school, you know, they were testing me to see if I could read anything. And I could. The, The best most technical thing they had, I would read it and they'd just be in awe and so forth. I don't know what that served, what purpose that served. Well, it helps you be a writer, that's for sure. Yeah, that's true. Good readers make good writers. So back to the not many mighty concept, you know, we, we do have a problem with, with ourselves, obviously, and it's a lifelong problem. We have to put to death the things of the flesh and live by the spirit mighty the moment i think of myself as mighty yeah that changes everything it changes everything and so we've got the the quest for success in ministry today it's always been there and we want our churches to be a certain size with certain kinds of buildings with certain kinds of budgets with maybe even certain kinds of people but I found, okay. Gail, and you found, I know, that some of the best pastors in the world are pastors of small congregations that are Absolutely. serving their people. They're not, you know, they're Absolutely. not getting much publicity, that type of thing. So it's a struggle, isn't it? I mean, it's a lifelong quest yes. to go low. That's the way I like to put it, to go low, <laughs> yeah. to stay low like Jesus was low on purpose. And, and no one others. does that. Uh, if they think they're mighty. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, as I look at the table of contents of, of your book, <laughs> I, lo- <laughs> I loved it. I noticed a lot of interesting names that you use to illustrate the not many mighty concept. And sometimes uh, these, these characters that you re- reference are controversial ones. So you had non-controversial names like Noah and Abraham. In some ways, you know, things went on there. Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Gideon, Samson, there's a controversial one. Balaam, that's a controversial one. Elijah, David, the apostles, Peter, James, John, Paul. So here's a here's a weird question maybe to ask. What what are your favorites among the group? That's a big group. Jacob, he didn't have a clue, man. He, he, he was old before he even uh, found a wife, so to speak, you know. And uh, the first child he had was uh, a daughter, didn't have a son. And uh, he named her Leah, which means uh, weak eyes or uh, actually it also means wild cow, which is... <laughs> Yes, is an oxymoron because uh, cows have always been domesticated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet, you you look at that story, and you think that uh, Rachel. Oh yes, uh, Rachel is is the uh, that that's the source of Hollywood kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, thing is, Rachel was barren for the longest time, and Leah was just popping out sons right and left. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but he didn't really love Leah. <laughs> he mm-hmm. loved Rachel. And God says to Leah, I think at a certain point, you know, Leah, I know your dad didn't love you. Mm-hmm. And I know your husband doesn't love you. But Leah, I love you. And I've chosen one of your sons mm-hmm. to be an ancestor mm-hmm. to me. Awesome. Awesome. It is. So in Jacob, you know, and you and when you talk about Jacob, you you refer to his name meaning dirty sneaky thief. I know that. Yeah, right. Which is great. By the way, I said that with Chuck Smith. I was sitting he was sitting beside me and someone across the table who I'll not identify with said, Well, that's not fair. That's not right. And Chuck said, Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. All right. Well, that's good. He validated that. So how did God use 
dirty, sneaky thief, heel catcher, supplanter. How did he use a man like Jacob and, and how does he illustrate what you're talking about in the book? Well, uh, you know, uh, first of all, uh, his favorite wife did not have, uh, the son. Well, he had Joseph. She had Joseph finally, but, uh, everyone thinks Joseph was never committed a sin and so forth. And surely the Messiah came through him, but no, no, no not mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, out of Leah's uh, children, there's an auspicious moment when Joseph, who is now in Egypt and has become quite important, and the boys don't know who he is when they come down seeking food, uh, he mistreats them, actually. I, he was sinful toward them, in a way. But uh, one thing that Joseph said, you got to leave this youngest son with me before he comes back. And, and Judah says, I can't take that. I, please, let, uh, I can't do that to dad. Take me. Hmm. If, I, if someone has to die, let it be me. Yeah. And I'm thinking, at that point, heaven's bells rang. Yes, you know? yes. And so Jesus becomes the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah, yeah, wow. Yeah, and and that was that was one of Leah's sons. And so God was saying, Leah, your husband doesn't love you. Your dad doesn't love you, but I love you. In mm. fact, I want you to. Be. I, I sometimes say, especially to college groups when I'm teaching them, I say, no woman thinks she's beautiful enough. Even the high-priced models have thousands of dollars worth of stuff to try to keep them beautiful. But the fact of the matter is, in God's eyes, you're gorgeous. Mm, you know? mm. And I want you to realize that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I've had w- women break out and cry Yes. when I say that. Mm-hmm. In that's God's so eyes, you're the winner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, that's another story. Yeah, not not the outward adorning of the braiding of hair, putting on jewels, wearing fine clothing, but the the uh, manifestation of the hidden person of the heart. You know, the the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, precious in the sight of God. Beautiful. So, um, do you have any of these personalities that you've written about in the book that you particularly relate to personally more than others? Well. Um... Probably, I, probably Peter. Yeah. <laughs> he never seemed to quite get his act together, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and he was a main arguer over who was the greatest. I relate to him, too, in the sense that, you know, he was, uh, before he was filled with the Spirit, he was definitely full of, full of himself. He was very confident in his own loyalty. And even though all the other of these disciples of yours, Jesus, are going to deny you, I will never deny you. Right. You know, right. He, he was absolutely certain. He had no idea really what was coming his way with the, the threat of Satan to sift him like wheat. He didn't know that was going on. So glad Jesus told him that that was going on. I relate to Peter, you know, because, you know, take the bull by the horns, get it done, you know, type A, choleric personality, you know, that's me in the natural, and I, you know, it's not helpful. And I'm amazed that uh, Jesus, they argued with each other. Those apostles did constantly, even right down to the very end, you know. In the Last Supper, <laughs> there was the argument over who would sit where. And then, of course, the slave's job was to wash feet. And none of them were going to because that would lower their status. And finally, you know, Peter, I think, he he argued and finally said, well, Jesus said, whoever's the least would be greatest. I think I'll sit down here, but we all know why, don't we? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then that didn't get it. Jesus gets up, actually does the slave's job. The other was looking for positions, and he was looking for work to do to bless people. And if I then, your Lord and Master, Jesus said to them, have washed your feet, so also you ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do to each other as I've done to you. And if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Ah, so much to learn in Scripture every day in life, too. Oh, man. But Jesus, what what amazes me is Jesus stuck with those guys. Yeah, yeah. He had to teach them the same 
lesson every day. Yeah, yeah. Because they constantly fought over who was the greatest, right down to the Last Supper. Yeah. <laughs> they fought over it again. But Jesus didn't fire them. I would have. <laughs> I'm kind of glad he hasn't fired me, Gail, I tell you. <laughs> you know, it really speaks to the inspiration of Scripture, doesn't it? I mean, if 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 a committee of men who were trying to create an organization wanted to write a book, they certainly wouldn't have written it the way the New Testament and the Gospels came out. They wouldn't have been honest. They wouldn't have been self-revelatory. They wouldn't have told the truth on themselves. And they did. Well, the way to, to way to get people to join with you is to tell them how to be mighty. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I'll tell you a little story. I uh, when I was in high school, I was chosen uh, to be the city's uh, person to go to Boys State, and uh, they I had one guy that uh, rich kid which i didn't have any fellowship with because i was the poorest of the poor come up to me and say you need to run for governor and they said you'll be the last chance this town has for governor i thought you're kidding but i did and i won being governor of boys state and then they elected me senior senator to boys nation and they were encouraging me run for president now wow and so I announced for president, and then God did a, a thing on me, you know, and as the political messages began, I realized I would have to sell myself. Mm. And that got to me. Mm. It literally just absolutely made me want to go cry. Mm. Mm. And I removed my name from that and learned a deep lesson mm. with that when I really could have been some they thought I'd be president of Boys Nation if I just ran for it. Mm, wow! Because I'm pretty verbal, you know. Yeah, boy, that's that's an amazing story. That's that's the grace of God, isn't it? Just, it really is, and I thank the Lord for those those tremendous lessons that that He let me learn. And two, every one of my sort of heroes fell, and He was saying to me, and I finally got this. Turn your eyes on Jesus. You know, he's your hero and not any of these people here. Well, um, obviously, in, in our discussion and in the book and in life, it's clear that when somebody reads the Bible, it's clear that God doesn't use perfect people. If he did, then no one would be used, right? So, uh, That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, just talking and thinking about this podcast interview, Gail, I was thinking about uh, one of the most liberating uh, concepts I ever heard resulted from reading A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. And there's a chapter in that book called The Self-Sufficiency of God. And one of the things that Tozer says in that chapter about the self-sufficiency of God, he makes a big point about the fact that God does not need anything. He's a self-dependent being. He's always existed he doesn't need anything, so anything he does is always for the benefit of others, not for himself. So in the sense that he doesn't need anything, it's also true that God doesn't need anyone. And when I learned that, he doesn't need me. He, he can get his program done without me, and it's not dependent upon me. It took a tremendous amount of pressure off of me and helped me to focus more on, then, then Lord, what is it that you would have me to do? You don't need me, but I love you. <laughs> I'm so grateful for this salvation that you've given me in this relationship. So how can I, how can I serve you? How can I bring glory to your amazing name? And and that was very, very, very liberating for me. So I realized at that point that it's not up to me, but I get to participate. So what do you think God's purposes are then for calling those that are? Uh, not wise, not mighty, not noble, since he doesn't need anything, what are his purposes in calling us? Well, let me go to, I think it's in Matthew 22, about verse 34 and on, where uh, one of the uh, Pharisees uh, asked Jesus, uh, what is the great commandment? Well, that was a stupid question because 
uh, practicing person would, with his family every morning, repeat that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus says that's the first and great commandment. But the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, this is what the Bible is all about. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you, in loving your neighbor, you know, I tell people, uh, I really am a preacher that knows how to make you miserable. You ready for this? (laughs) (laughs) Think about yourself. (laughs) Yeah, right. There it is. And uh, so Jesus is always thinking of others, and his whole concept is love God and then love others. And that means service. Uh, it's serving others. That's the way you, you love people as you serve them. It isn't just feeling. Yeah, so God's purpose then in calling us, because we're not mighty and we're not noble, we're not wise— He calls us because he wants to show his love to us, and he wants to flow with his love through us. That's what I'm hearing you say. Well, yes, and and he wants wants us to be happy, and that happiness is connected not with what you possess or how mighty you become, but how you serve and how you bless. And in that, you discover real joy in life. It's, It's simple as that. It isn't what you own. It isn't if you get that nice new suit, if you remember what those were, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. that nice car you've always wanted. No, it's going to wear out. Sorry about that. And you're probably going to wreck it too. So I have a friend who's who uh, at one point in his ministry life as a pastor, he pastored a church which became a mega church by today's definition. Anyway, um, he, he eventually turned that church over to another leader and the church is doing real well, and now he's pastoring a small congregation in California. And um, so I just asked him the other day, just in a casual conversation, so how is that, making that shift between pastoring a mega church to now pastoring a small congregation? And I loved his answer. He said, you know, I've always felt like any group that I'm standing before, any group of people that I'm ministering to, the size doesn't make any difference. I'm just as fulfilled and just as blessed with a small group as I am with a large group. That didn't add anything to me at all. And I thought that is a tremendous response. That is a tremendous thing. Because he just he just reveled in the in the idea that God was wanting to do something in people's lives and he could be a conduit of his love. Yeah. Let me tell you a little story. When I uh, served for uh, several years on the headquarters staff of the denomination I was once in. And uh, I was ready to leave there, and I went over to, be, to serve as an assistant to a guy that uh, they said, this is the ideal gathering of two guys that are so much alike, and this is going to be an awesome thing. Well, uh, they knew that I was going to want to be a uh, small group oriented, but there was one guy there who was from headquarters that had become part of that church. And so he said, we better start the small groups first and get them going or Gail will ruin us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he only, he knew small group to him meant you still had pews in a pulpit, but just fewer. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I came finally there, I, my first words in to the church, and it was a good church of about a thousand people. I said, "Folks, the small group ministry is no more." They cheered, <laughs> <laughs> and the pastor said, "Well, what are you going to do?" I said, "Let me start one." And uh, God taught me some things through that because, since I have a degree in counseling too, I was to be the person and man to have counselors. And, I didn't have enough time to counsel everybody that felt like they hated it. So I would get them together in, in a small group. And at first I called them my sickies and God made me pay for saying that. Uh (laughs) (laughs) But so many phenomenal things happen 
in the, that small group, uh, it, it, it was hard. I can't even begin to tell you about it. And uh, people who are suicidal now were healthy and whole. And it was so simple, just learning to love each other, care for each other, and learn to also serve. That was the most important thing. And uh, I started another group with the leaders, some elders and the like. And they were saying, you know, I get more out of this meeting than I do out of church, which is kind of a threatening thing for a pastor to hear. But I understand what's going on because it's these relationships that really are most important. And uh, so those were the two groups that I started. But I left there after a year to come out to California to teach at what was then Southern California College, now Vanguard University. Yeah, I remember. And, uh, <laughs> okay. I was a student. You were the chaplain. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I forget that. <laughs> Uh, I think of myself as your student. Really. <laughs> oh, <okay>, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's a great story. So I think uh, we we pastors need to to think differently about the church. If that's a threat, I get more out of this small group than I do the church. And the pastor's threatened by that. The pastor needs to change his thinking and realize that's the church. That small group. That's the church. That's where the church can be the church and function as the church. Yeah, what I found out is after I left there, the, the, the way it, it was caught on so well that within three months, they had 23 small groups going. Awesome. awesome. After I left, and I go, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And the whole church would never be the same. That's great. Well, one sad thing about that, that pastor, a uh, wonderful guy, left to become president of a Bible school. And uh, that church first wanted me to come back and be pastor, but I couldn't do it. And somebody decided he had the word of the Lord that the bottom guy on their list should be the one. I knew him. And if everyone, if, if I were to say anything, I'd say, whatever you do, don't get him. Mm. But somebody thinking in the spirit, they were, so they got him and the church went from over a thousand down to where the district had to take it over. They couldn't even pay their bills, mm, that's running about 25 or 30 people. That's sad. That's so sad. It is. Well, let's go into a different direction here. I want to talk about something that you spent some time on in, in the book, Not Many Mighty. I want, to, I want to focus a little bit on, on something that happened in the life of Paul the Apostle after many years of ministry. It's a common story, the thorn in the flesh story, found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. And I know there are disagreements about what Paul's thorn in the flesh actually was, and I don't really want to focus on that particularly. But there was a, a specific reason why God allowed this thorn in the flesh in Paul's life. And Paul asked the Lord three times that it might depart from him, and, and he said, no, I, I'm not going to take it away. So um, what was that reason that God allowed this, this thorn in the flesh in Paul's life? What was going on? Well, this is my personal opinion, of course, but Paul was an effective guy. Uh, probably the most effective New Testament person other than Jesus himself. That's, that's, uh, that's a source of being pretty uh, elevated in your own mind. But there was something about that thorn in his flesh that kept him humble, you know. And exactly what it was, we don't really know. It might have been his eyesight. It might have been his voice. It might have been something else about him. I don't know. But it was something that kept him from getting very elevated. Well, whatever it was, whatever the thorn was, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, that lest he should be exalted above measure by the abundance of his revelations that he'd received, a thorn in the flesh was given to him. So it was connected to his effectiveness, and it was connected to the amount of revelation that God poured into his life. Yeah, <laughs> maybe he acted crazy. I don't know. <laughs> People thought, how can anything good come out of that crazy guy? I don't know. Huh. But that would have been a thorn in his flesh. I don't know. Maybe it was it was uh, his voice. I, I don't know. We mm -hmm. won't know. Mm -hmm. We can only speculate. 
Well, he learned a lesson through it. He learned a major lesson through it. And the major lesson was something that, you know, as we're talking about the weaknesses of God's servants and and the fact that we're not mighty noble or, or, uh, you know, all these things, yet he still uses us by his grace. So we all have weaknesses. So Paul learned something about his weakness that was an amazing truth that can, when we, when we grasp it ourselves, can be life-changing. Yeah, uh, and God uses us more in our weakness, and we don't, by the human nature, understand that. I think I'm most used when I'm strong. God says no. I think I appreciate other people a lot more when I'm weak and consequently can love them and serve them more. Yeah, Paul even said, uh, I would rather, I will rather boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's quite a, quite a statement. I remember having a woman, Gail, come up to me once. She'd been in, in the church I pastored for years, and she was a friend. I, I still love her to this day. And she said, Bill, you, you're a gifted Bible teacher. You do real well at that, but you're not much of a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> And, and and that was just her style. She was kind of direct. And, oh. I, you know, I just, I thought about it. And I thought about some of my relational weaknesses and, and the way I can seem to people and the way I can seem aloof and all those kinds of things. So rather than fight it, I decided to embrace it and say, okay, these are my weaknesses. This is This is my temperament. This is what I'm naturally wired to do, but it's a weakness. As I began to confess it and and just be honest about it and and not defensive about it, it was amazing, Gail, how my heart began to change and I became softer with people. That's an example of what you're talking about. Our weakness, actually, he uses us in our weakness more than we know. I agree. The last church I served as a pastor, uh, I followed a guy who was not a teacher, but he sure was a preacher, you know, and so I come and I'm just a teacher and I don't, I don't have him shouting, jumping up and down and things like that. And so there were, there were uh, some people that really turned against me, but they kind of were from the beginning, but they never, <laughs> never got over it. But I, I'll never forget uh, a notice, a, a little note that was from a 12 year old girl whose parents hated me. They even told me they were praying that God would kill me, you know. And she said, dear Pastor Irwin, in fact, it was in the offering plate and one of the, one of the uh, deacons uh, brought that note on up to me on the platform because he wanted me to see it, you know. He said, uh, my, my parents don't like you, but I do because I know you love us and I love you, you know, and I'm thinking mm. I'll go for that 12 year old. Cause I never could change. They were, her parents were the ones who were praying that God would kill me. You know? wow. Wow. So I, I had an interesting congregation. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. <laughs> you know, I, I'm just thinking as you're sharing that Gail, that it's, you know, pastoral ministry is hard enough. But then to have people that make themselves obvious enemies of ours, you know, they're not my enemies, but they've made themselves enemies of mine. Um, you know, that's, that just triples and quadruples the, the difficulty of the ministry. But to, to have, a, have the note of a 12-year-old little girl, that can keep us going. It did, let me tell you. And it just reminds me of how important it is to, to minister to the people who want to be there. Minister to the people who are who are ready to go. Love them all. Love everybody. Be willing to serve everybody. But those are the encouraging things that keep us going. You had to enter that church, that last church I served as pastor, through uh, a yard with a gate from the parking lot in the back. And I would station myself at that gate and kneel down and hug every child oh. that would come through, you know. And one day we had a problem uh, with a, a heater or something. And I was down in the darkened hallway trying to deal with that. And I looked up 
and there was a oh man a line of little children waiting for their hug oh <laughs> man oh wow oh my oh and they still they still love it today i'm sure that's that's just uh -oh. a great story that's great yeah well okay so now we're going to move into another of the chapters in your book you you wrote about the anointing in fact that's the title of the chapter and you've often said in your teaching ministry that you have one string on your guitar which is the nature of jesus and i'm so glad that you have that one string so the anointing i mean these are these are words that are used a lot you know does this pastor does this worship leader does this person have they come under the anointing and do they have the anointing? So what did the anointing look like in the ministry of Jesus? And, and how does his anointing often contrast with anointing as we sometimes identify it today? Well, the only thing I can think that it would be, that would be consistent with the Lord, would be an anointing to serve. If you really feel like, man, I, I just, I got to serve somebody, <laughs> you know, uh, famous singer you know when he got saved wrote that song gotta serve somebody gotta yes, serve yes, somebody. Yes, yeah. i have a story relative to that but i can't verify it but uh, oh bummer i wanted to hear it <laughs> <laughs> well i don't want to say i'll tell you over the okay. over the tv and okay. what have you all right we'll do it we'll do it but, later uh, uh the anointing is is to serve it's not anointing for us to show off, but it's to serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you quoted Luke, uh, Luke chapter four, in that chapter. You know where Jesus actually, after he had been filled with the Spirit, then he went into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for forty days, and then he comes to Nazareth, and he says, "This is my ministry. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because He has anointed me." to preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prisons to those that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That was his anointing, wasn't it? I mean, he his yeah. anointing was to preach and proclaim this message, not to the high and mighty, but yeah. to the poor and to the needy. And, and, and it being, usually we think of it as an oil, and maybe it's like, okay, you're oiled in all your joints to do this. Mm, <laughs> if mm. you do anything else. Mm. Oh, that's good. I like that. <laughs> there won't be, it'll break down. So, Lubricated by the Spirit. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so we can really be the body of Christ when the Holy Spirit lubricates us. The body will work well. I agree. One of yeah, I was thinking the other day, Gail, about um, what Paul said in Ephesians 6. Uh, 18 he said praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and my thought was what would it be like in our churches truly what it would be like if every christian prayed for those within their knowledge base their understanding in their world in that church and everybody was being prayed for by somebody else what would that church become i, I can't even imagine i can't even imagine it, it would be every pastor's dream <laughs> yeah it would but we need to get our we need to get my i need to get myself praying for everybody more but for the body to pray for for ourselves is so huge. It's, and I bet a you little, in your small group, you know, in, in that church of a thousand you were talking about when you started a whole new paradigm for, for small groups, the amount of praying for one another that went on, that's probably one of the reasons why they were getting healed so quickly. Exactly. But at my very first pastorate, which I, I went to, it's another story, at the mouth of the Mississippi River, they were within days of just shutting the church down, you know. But uh, you don't need to know the whole story of why I went down there. But my wife and I decided that's our, the only one that we know about that needs a pastor. And someone said they need someone like you to go down there and get a job and help them support the church. <laughs> so that wasn't exactly my dream. But <laughs> I went down there and uh, just loved the people and, they, and served them best I could. 
I had to get a job to support myself. And uh, that church has been destroyed three times by hurricanes, but it's still going, you know, and I'm thinking, well, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I went up from there at the invitation of the state officials in that denomination to pastor their church, you know. Uh-huh. It doesn't even exist now. <laughs> oh, wow, wow, wow. And then I was invited from there, after a, just a long story, over to a church older than the denomination with a big, beautiful building in the silk stocking area of town. And I found out that I was pastor number 52 oh my and it's 60 years of existence mm. and uh i thought you know this church has no right to exist it doesn't now it doesn't now but the church that the church that i went to first that was just struggling ready to close but i went there and just loved the people and loved the time there i like to fish i could fish just 100 yards away from from where we lived and uh mosquitoes oh man mosquitoes you can't believe how many mosquitoes they had there (laughs) and when when the mosquitoes weren't out which was in january the gnats were much worse than the mosquitoes oh my i would i would have to take a, a a towel and just wrap it around me and have only a small opening out there so I could fish <laughs> because the gnats would drive me crazy. But that church still still exists, man. Still exists. So there are actually people that live in that area. Yeah. <laughs> but the Lord just did a wonderful thing there, even though it's been destroyed three times by hurricanes. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my church, Jesus said. That's great. Well, there are a lot of different other po- uh, profound chapters in your book, Gail, and I appreciate it. I hope that guys will get a copy of it and uh, and read it for themselves because it's so worth it. So I'd like to give you a couple of minutes now just to direct your thoughts to pastors, personally, specifically, anything you want to say, uh, to encourage them, strengthen them, challenge them, whatever you have on your heart. These are challenging days for pastors, as you know, as you ma- as you can imagine. Uh, with the COVID coming out of that, perhaps anything else that's going on. So anything you have on your heart to share, go, go ahead. You got it. Well, God taught me a lesson that I hope I'll never forget is that I thought that I had to win the approval of everybody and win their vote because, you know, in that denomination, you were voted, usually voted on again about every three years. And, uh, the, the fact was most of the pastors change churches about every three years. So, uh, so you, you were wanting to win people's votes or whatever, if you wanted to stay and the Lord had to rescue me from that, which he did with my first congregation because they, they were just delighted that somebody would even come down there and they were about to close the church and it still exists, man. All 50 years later, you know, so, uh, or more than that. Uh, but I learned something about what it meant to, uh, to truly love people. And there was an old man there who had been a pastor in a denomination that was extremely legalistic. And, uh, he, uh, when I'd have a, prayer meeting usually just be me and him that would show up and and I'd listen to him pray and I'd want to move away a little bit he said Lord if I'm going to hurt one of your kids just kill me now (laughs) I'm thinking I don't know if I'm ready to pray that or not (laughs) but uh in his old age he had been part of a denomination that believed if you take medicine, you're not saved. You're going to hell. If you drink coffee, you're going to hell. And he told me of a dream he had one night when he went to heaven and boy, it was so beautiful angels everywhere. And he said, you know, every one of them had a cup of coffee in his hand. Oh, that is hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It is. (laughs) But, but, you know, God talked to this guy. He was just the sweetest spirit. You know, 
he, he had trouble reading things and pronouncing them. I could let him preach for me and he could preach heresy, but nobody could <laughs> know what he was preaching. You know? But they just loved him and I did too. And uh, one day when he had reached, you know, he was about 85 and was having an 85 year old uh, kind of problem. And they called me and they said, uh, Brother Irwin, can you come over? Dad's having a real problem and taking his medicine. And when I got over to his house, there he was over in the corner on the floor of the bedroom in a fetal position. And across on the corner of the, of the dresser was the medicine. And, and I said, well, Brother Holland, that was his name. I, they tell me you won't take your medicine. And this old man got over and came over to this 22-year-old kid, me, and sat down on my knee like a child and put his arm around my neck and his head up against mine and said, Brother Irwin, if I take that medicine, will I go to hell? And I said, Brother Holland, you don't even know how to go to hell. I said, <laughs> Everything in that bottle, God created it, and he just let us figure out how to use it. And so, so he took his medicine and got well. Wow, you know? that's a great story. But, uh, the things that people, that religion makes them miserable over, it's just, well, ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I am so glad, Gail, for your lifelong crusade against religion and for Jesus, <laughs> because it has strengthened me, and I know many, many others. I really appreciate it. It's been a treat to have you with us again today, so thanks for joining us. I really mean that. It's, it's, a, well, it's a pleasure. You. Yeah. So those of you that are listening, you can find out more about Gail from his website, servant.org, servant.org. And I do recommend the reading or listening to the entire collection of books by, by Gail. All of his books, his MP3 readings of his books and articles are available for free. And he tells me that even the shipping is free at Servant.org. So again, we're just glad you joined us today on Strength for Today's Pastor. Comments and interview topics are always welcome. So contact information is going to be given by the announcer at the end. Again, a thanks to Gail Irwin. Just love you, brother. So, so great to have you with Thank us. Thank you. Love you, too. And right. Thanks for this opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. So may the Lord bless, keep, and strengthen you all in your life with Jesus and in your service to him and for him, and hope to have you with us again next week. Strength for Today's Pastor is sponsored by Pointman Ministries. You can find us at PointmanMinistries.com. That's spelled P-O-I-M-E-N Ministries.com. If something in today's program prompts a question or comment, or if you have a topic idea for a future episode, just shoot us an email at StrongerPastors at gmail.com. That's StrongerPastors at gmail.com. May the Lord bless you as you serve Him, His pastors, and His church.